here's the deal with Bromfield. I said he was a, it was a screenwriter who knew who had all these friends in Hollywood that would come back to his farm. And he was in France with, uh, as I'm saying, Alice B. Topos and Gertrude Stein and Hemingway. And I said, he's a fascinated figure. He's just wonderful. Plus, he, he was a great farmer. And I said, we're English majors. We love the fact that he was who he was before he was a farmer. And it's just a fascinating character. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. In this podcast, we're going to talk about Louis Bromfield. And if you don't know Louis Bromfield, you should do a little research. He's written quite a few books, and it really started focus on a different way of producing food, in some ways older ways of producing food. What triggered it is that I read a book called The Planner of Modern Life that just came out. It was by Stephen Heyman, and it was Planner of Modern Life, Louis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution. What an interesting story. We're going to dive into it here because in the book itself, a couple of people were credited in the in the book that I thought I should just go check with. John and Suki Jameson, who are a story in themselves, and in fact, they've written stories themselves. Uh, they've authored a book called Coyotes in the Pasture and Wolves at the Door. And they have really been inspired by Louis Bromfield. And like Louis Bromfield, and like a lot of you that listen to Farm to Table Talk, they didn't grow up on a farm. They found themselves in an opportunity that they could start farming and needed to look somewhere, and they ended up finding Louis Bromfield, who started the whole thing going with um, Malabar Farms in Ohio, but not till after he had experiences in France and as a writer and as a scriptwriter in Hollywood and friend of famous people. He came back to farm in Ohio. And that's what these stories are all about. So first, we're going to start off with John and Suki Jameson. And John, did you like the book? I think his book is great. I do too. I enjoyed it a lot. And I probably enjoyed it for more of the non-farm reasons than I should admit to. I really would have liked to have been in Paris in the 20s. Wouldn't, wouldn't it be something? Yeah. We were both English majors. So that's why that was one of the big attractions to Bromfield is he was there with Alice B. Topos and Gertrude Stein and Hemingway and Fitzgerald. And that was the time, you know, it was great. It was great. The, with Bromfield, uh, what is so interesting about him quickly is that, for instance, we decided uh, we were living in Kansas City and we were moving back to Pennsylvania. And we wanted to uh, live on a farm in Pennsylvania. And a friend of ours uh, gave us a copy of Malabar Farm uh, when we had a going away party. And she was from uh, uh, she was from Kansas City, but married to a guy from Cincinnati. So I I read the book, and it was and it just was fascinating. And and so so you had this guy. We were Suki and I were both English majors. So you had somebody who appealed to us 
because he was uh, he was a writer in Paris after World War One uh, with the Lost Generation uh, group of Alice B. Toklas, Gertrude Stein, um, uh, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, um, and uh, was a fascinating character that way. And then in the uh, in the late '30s, seeing what was going on in in uh, Europe, he left and went back to Ohio, and restored a bunch of farms. He he uh, 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 his uh, vocation was as a screen screenwriter by then, so he was in Hollywood. That's how he made his money to be able to do what he did at Malabar Farm, which was just absolutely beautiful. But he also stuck to his guns with doing uh, whatever you want to call it, natural farming, sustainable, regenerative. Um, he did, he, he, he would use um, uh, chemical fertilizers, uh, especially I think nitrogen when he was trying to bring something back. But uh, two of his chapters in, uh, he has two chapters with the same name, which is Grass the Great Healer which is in Malabar Farm. And that, that, start, that was what was interesting to us because where we live, our grass is so good um, that in, the, it, 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 in 1900, the best merino flocks in the country were in Southwest Pennsylvania. Is did the you, say, did, so did you say merino? So you're talking merino, about- Yeah, when we were, merino yeah, merino sheep. So I'm sorry, so that when, uh, people were able to um, make a good le living raising merinos in southwest Pennsylvania for wool in the 1900s because the grass is so good here. And we have 40 to 45 inches of rain usually a year, sometimes, sometimes more, sometimes less, but that's about the average. And uh, it's just a great place to, to raise uh, uh, ruminants. And, and that's what uh, Bromfield centered a lot of his writing on. And uh, so he was taking farms that had been going back to, to where we started this, it, in his opinion, prostituted, uh, over, over uh, raised a lot of corn, and became almost like dust bowl farms. And he brought them back through grass farming and then and and then started plowing that and used, tried not to use a mold board plow. He was he was into getting rid of that in the uh that was plowman's folly. And that was written by another guy from Ohio whose name I forget, but there was a lot of interesting stuff going on at that time meaning around the war. Suki, when, when you and John came back to Pennsylvania, which came first, the farm or the book? Uh, did, did, did you kind of stand and find yourself looking, what are we going to do with this? Or was it uh, uh, something that you were, you were looking into and being inspired by that got you looking more at saying, yeah, we can tackle a tough farm? Well, actually, it was the we bought the we bought the house because it was an old 1798 stone house and we wanted to restore the house that had 65 acres. We knew nothing about farming. We didn't come from farming background. 
but what we're and they wouldn't sell it without us taking the 65 acres so that's why we ended up with a farm with 65 acres and our interest quickly i guess quickly since yeah. we did have the 65 acres lean toward restoring the farm versus restoring the house so that's, that's a good way of putting but that's right that's how it worked and and we moved then to another farm later uh which was in much worse condition uh soil wise than the first one and we had a farmer at the first one that we worked with and learned what was going on and we learned what alfalfa was he had a big he he had a pure stand of alfalfa on our place and sprayed it and and all of that stuff on that farm but uh at least we understood then what what a legume was and what the advantages were. And so when we came back here uh, or moved to this farm, uh, it was uh, the back part of it had been strip mined illegally um, during the 74 uh, coal boom, which tied in with the Arab oil embargo and coal prices went from $7 to $70 in six months. And so Anyone who had a bulldozer would mine anything that they saw. And so consequently, it was done without proper licensing. And the, and the pH was four and a half. So it was rough. You know, gosh, where I grew up, strip mining started coming in too. And in the beginning, yes. uh, now if they do any strip mining and most of it's gone, they just stripped everything they could. But in recent years, they would have to put the topsoil back on top. Right. But for the like the first 30, 40 years or so of strip mining, they just took all that good topsoil and it just disappeared. And oh, just yeah. Left, That's correct. And just left yeah. spoil banks. Which, That's all it was. That's, that was the back of our farm. Uh, that right? was the back of our farm. And now it's it's just beautiful. And it was it's all it was all uh, uh, we we started. We read a, another book called Grass Productivity by Andre Voisin, which was written in the 50s. And it's about rotational grazing. And so that all kind of tied together. Very Actually, he was pretty close to what uh, Bromfield was doing. Bromfield was doing it a little differently, but not that much. I mean, he was still moving animals around, but not in such a uh, structured regimented man. I got to stop you a minute because I know there's sure. people that are listening to this podcast that feel like they're in a new frontier because they're kind of right where you were many, many years ago. Um, maybe didn't grow up on a farm, didn't know much about farming, thinking this is the direction they want to go. And and what I find fascinating when I hear those stories of today and your stories of probably, what, over 30-some years ago, right. that um, that they have so much in common. And that, that uh, a, a book uh, written back in the middle of the last century uh, maybe even more relevant in some ways to people today that are standing at the at the brink of trying to get started and looking at some land that hasn't been treated properly. Uh, and it would seem to me that Suki, you and John have have um, you found inspiration there, but apparently you feel others can still find it, even in you know books like Malabar Farm. 
uh, and sure. others that you're that you're mentioning. And I just think that's really interesting. Uh, to sometimes people know about they can go to old books, and when they think real old, like a couple hundred year old books, and then find inspiration, saying, "Gee, that holds up." But it's a new idea to be looking at sustainable agriculture, I think, and regenerative agriculture, and so forth. And, and realize that uh, we're not just pioneers today and people have been there before and have faced the challenge and still have lessons we can learn from. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And, and with Bromfield, I think what, uh, what happened was when he was, well, when he was in France, he was fascinated with the gardening in France and, and uh, uh, the way they did uh, over the over shoveling i forget what it is he describes it but he he's he was very interested in it so when he came back i mean it's almost he he took farms that were beautiful and had a nice lay of the land but were terrible and i think he liked the challenge and was trying to figure out a way to do it he had the funding to do it i don't think he ever made any money doing it but that wasn't really his purpose at that time but um, uh, but he but when when one looks at this to me it's it's you're looking at uh, uh, what people talked about the old old ways and these are old ways so the way we're farming are old ways the way we have a, a slaughter plant and we do it the old ways we don't do it like modern plants do it and it it makes a better product and and a more natural product and. That's what we learn because that's what we want to do. But there, there are places like you're saying, there are, there are references like Malabar farm, like Wazan, uh, that are, that are old and tried and true. One of the things interesting about this, I find is that what kind of got me going on this is I just picked up a book at Joseph Beth bookstore, get a plug for my favorite independent bookstore. And it was called uh, The Planner of Modern Life. Right. And the author is Stephen Heyman. And one of the reasons I wanted to reach out to you two, when I was, I liked the book, I went in and I read in the back here and it starts, and, and he credits you two for giving him the idea. Uh, right. So uh, tell me a little bit about that. How'd you connect with, with Stephen Heyman and, uh, or is it Hyman? I'm not sure I'm pronouncing Heyman. it. Heyman. Heyman. Okay. And that led to a book because you guys have been an open book and I should mention you've written uh, at least one book that I've also really enjoyed called coyotes in the pasture and wolves at the door Thank by John you. and Suki Jameson, J A M I S O N. And I hope people will look, look for your book as well. Thank you. So you are, you are a book. You've written a book You've had people learn from you. I even had you come into my clubhouse room the other day, and there are people yeah. around the world that were asking you questions of what you did. Wonderful. And you've inspired another book that was Stephen Heyman. Right. Tell me, how how did that come come about? Because, again, he credits you for getting him started on Bromfield that resulted in this excellent book called The Planner of Modern Life. Thank you. Yeah, well, here's what happened. He had... Uh, uh, <coughs> He was doing. Uh, uh, he, he was freelancing and doing an article for the for the New York Times about falling water. Frank Lloyd Wright's um, house in uh, Frank Lloyd Wright designed house mm -hmm. about an hour. It's about an hour from here, and uh, and there are a couple other Wright 
houses around this area. And so he he was writing, uh, he was doing basically a travel uh, piece uh, about southwestern Pennsylvania, but really zeroing in on falling water and other things that you could do. And so he heard about us some way. And uh, uh, some people thought we actually had a um, restaurant, but we have special dinners. And anyway, that was fine. But when he came over um, to start working on the article, we were we were talking and, and having a great time. And I had told him that uh, uh, Johnny Apple, uh, who was R.W. Apple Jr., uh, of the New York Times uh, wrote a big piece about us in the in the Wednesday food section of the New York Times in Easter in, in uh, the year 2000, which changed our business totally. We got 150 phone calls by noon or something with people that wanted lamb. And Apple was a, was a big, big writer for the Times. And he was a political writer, and he would only stay working for the Times if he was allowed to write about food. And so Heyman knew about uh, Johnny Apple and his reputation. And so I said, one of the interesting things was we were talking about Malabar Farm, uh, Apple and I. And I said, it, uh, uh, Apple was a big name dropper. So he had said, do you know who got married there? And I said, yes, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And he said, oh, yes, Betty and I talk about it all the time because he was a name dropper. But anyway, so so then he, uh, he Heyman got interested and he said, well, what is, I don't understand. And I said, here's the deal with Bromfield. I said he was a, he was a screenwriter who knew, who had, all these friends in Hollywood that would come back to his farm. And he was in France with, uh, as I'm saying, Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein and Hemingway. And I said, he's a fascinated figure. He's just wonderful. Plus, he, he was a great farmer. And I said, we're English majors. We love the fact that he was who he was before he was a farmer. And it's just a fascinating character. And it just it just got him very interested. He'd never heard of him before, and I think that's what what was the appeal too, is is and the timing of the the movement. Everybody's thinking about farming yeah, and that's farm right. table yeah. and renovation and regeneration. And so he, of course, being a writer, was fascinated. And so he had to do all that research and it all came together in the book. It was great. What was interesting, though, he was, I, I think, kind of, is that he had heard about Johnny Apple. Johnny Apple's a big writer. He was interested in Bromfield. It just was great. It was fun. It was fun. Well, it ended up being a good book. And, you know, and actually, as a, I saw this, I sent him an email and um, I'm not getting him into this podcast. I hope to have him in an, in another one because he was very kind in the email I got back. I really appreciate uh, the two of you, your insights, and we're going to visit again sometime. I want to come back and and have another conversation more about what you've done, because like I said, You've kind of lived a book. I mean, you have done what a lot of people would like to do right now. And when I see some of the pictures of your farm, one of the things that strikes me about that part of the world, 
um, you know, it's just perfect for uh, uh, pastures, the hills and, and trees. Yeah. And, and, and you know, um, you probably wouldn't do the same farming if you're between Champaign, Illinois, and Peoria. You know, it's exactly, flat, no, flat, you're exactly as a, right. flat as a tabletop. You can have farm equipment that's 100 feet wide and, you know, massive tractors that cost $800,000. A lot of your land, you couldn't turn a tractor like that around. No, you couldn't. No, and and you couldn't you couldn't work them on the hills. When I mow the pastures, I go up and down. Well, and and you know that's this that's the other message I'm trying to get across to people is that uh, there's such a small share of the entire world that you can use for agriculture, and and even a smaller share of that that you can use for that kind of the kind of intensive crop production. Um, a lot of places are doing corn, soybeans, and others that they probably shouldn't, that they really right. should just go with what's natural and be grass farmers. And uh, you guys are pioneers, and you're you're continuing to share that story, and you've helped me draw attention to literally a story about it. And and again, I want to mention you own, your own story and a book you have, Coyotes in the Pasture and Wolves at the Door. Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing this conversation on Farm to Table Talk. Great. Thank you, Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. That was John and Suki Jameson talking about Louis Bromfield and also about introducing the author of the book that I mentioned, The Planner of a Modern Life, Stephen Hyman. And right after I read Stephen Hyman's book, The Planner of Modern Life, Louis Bromfield and the Seeds of a Food Revolution, I remember my friend Rich Collins, and many of you have heard of Rich. He's been a guest before on Farm to Table Talk. He's highly respected, really all over the country, perhaps all over the world. And he is all the time talking about Louis Bromfield. In fact, Rich has gave me a couple of books of, from Louis Bromfield and asked me to read them and pass them on to others. And I was glad that I did. So as soon as I read The Planter of Modern Life, I called Rich Collins. And Rich is going to join us now. And not only that, but when I talked to Rich, he told me that he's been talking to another author who is getting ready to publish another book about Louis Bromfield. And I said, well, let's have her join us too. And that's Annalise Abbott. And so I'm happy to go on with this conversation about Bromfield and have my friend Rich Collins and also Annalise Abbott. Happy to have them with us today. Rich, welcome to you. And I don't know until we all got together here how much, much you've been in contact with Annalise, but but uh, but you kind of are in the, been in the heart and soul of California agriculture and, and even more broadly. Um, people look to you for many reasons, and we're going to get back into some of your own personal experiences, but you discovered Louis Bromfield, and, and, um, and I'd like you to maybe kind of explain what's interested you in books written by Louis Bromfield, and also if you might um, introduce how you came across Annalise Abbott, and we'll ask Annalise to kind of fill in the gaps, too. Sure. Thank you, Roger. Um, you know, I, I'm going to title myself a, a Bromfield groupie, but I would consider uh, Annalise a, a Bromfield scholar and uh, quite quite a different level of, uh, of knowledge <laughs> and information. But uh, my 
my relationship with him, if you will, goes back to the early 70s when I have a book here, um, a copy of Malabar Farm that was uh, uh, from Ballantine Books um, that was re uh, republished back in the 70s. And my mother purchased it for me. And the only reason she purchased it was because it had the word farm in it. And as a young kid, I wanted to be a farmer. And she brought this book home to me when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11 or 12. I, I can't remember. I was pretty young. And she said, I found this book for you to read. And I, I devoured it. Um, so I, I've been a, a Bromfield groupie probably since then. Um, I've purchased many of his books uh, over the years and given them away. That is to say, Pleasant Valley, Malabar Farm, uh, Out of the Earth. From my experience, I generally purchase them on, on eBay or some other website, you know, used or old bookstores, used bookstores. And I, I just give them away because... I think he has a good message overall. And Annalise, you could probably talk to the, perhaps the accuracy of his, his writing, if you will. But, you know, just that message of community and the importance of good soil, respect for the water cycle, uh, the importance of good farming. And those are messages that have been lost upon us to a certain extent. At least they, they, they ebb and flow. And I think Bromfield's writing <clears throat> is a good way to reintroduce those topics because he was a good writer, obviously. And um, so I, uh, I've always enjoyed his writing and I've been to Malabar Farm, oh golly, three times. I was there just 10 days ago, happenstance, have family up in Cleveland, and we spent the night at the Sugar Maple Cabin um, on the farm. And I've, I've even been to his house in uh, Saint-Lys, France, uh, twice, <laughs> believe it or not, because <laughs> um, I had reasons to be in that part of France many, many, many times. So um, I've, I've, you know, visited the Presbyter and and the, seen his garden and all that kind of stuff. So and then Annalise, I met, um, I saw she's been writing some articles on the history of, of organic agriculture. I believe, Annalise, you can you can take it. But um, I I saw that. With her credits down at the bottom of the article, she was writing a history of Malabar Farm. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, another Bromfield groupie. Um, so I reached out to Annalise. And in fact, uh, we emailed and chatted maybe a time or two. And and she sent me a transcript of her book. It's really well written, really interesting history. And um, so, yeah, there's there's more than just a few of us out there who are Bromfield fans. Wow, I, I'm almost embarrassed it's taken me this long to become one of the groupies, Rich, but thanks for getting me into the club. Uh, Annalise, I don't know if you're you're a groupie or not. It seems like you're you're invited to be to be one, or maybe the leader of the group now that you're going to write a book. How did you get into this? What's gotten you fascinated with Malabar Farms and the Louis Bromfield stories? Well, it started back when I was a student at the Ohio State University. I had to, I was an honor student, and so I had to do some kind of research project, and I was really interested in sustainable agriculture and in the history of agriculture, and so I wanted to take like a history class in agriculture, but they didn't offer one, and so one day they had this event at the library where they were talking about all the different collections they had in the rare books library, and so I went up to the curator afterwards, and I said, hey, do you have anything on agriculture, and he said, oh, we've got the Lewis Bromfield collection. And at the time, I didn't even know who Lewis Brownfield was because I wasn't from Ohio. I was from Michigan and I'd never heard of him. But I'm like, OK, I'm going to see who this guy is. So I checked out some books from the library. 
I think I got actually the farm was one of the first ones I read, which was a novel that Bromfield wrote about his childhood. And uh, there's a collection by Charles Little that had excerpts from other books. And I'm like, hey, this is kind of interesting. He's talking about soil science and he's talking about all these things in sustainable agriculture that I thought were new. And here he is talking about this so 70 years ago. And so when it was time to do my research project, I went into the archives and I started looking at archival documents about Malabar Farm. And I found this whole story here and it was really fascinating. And I found this whole movement about soil conservation and all these things that really I had never heard about in the history in history at all. And so after I graduated, I wrote a little honors thesis. And so after I graduated, I thought, you know, this is, you know, really new scholarship. Maybe I could get it published as a book. And so I sent it to uh, Kent State University Press and they said, yeah, this would be a good book, but you've got to have a lot more background research. You've got to put it in its historical context. And so I spent the next four years doing that, reading hundreds of books from the library and articles and doing a lot more archival research. And so the end result is my book, which is called Malabar Farm, Lewis Brownfield, Friends of the Land and the Rise of Sustainable Agriculture. And that's going to be published with Kent State University Press this November. Well, congratulations. Uh, when when you write a book like that, I understand what must go into it as far as all the research. I, I suppose you went to the farm, I assume. I did. I visited the farm twice. I went once in 2015 when I was still a student, and then I went back in 2018. And Rich has been there three times and even been to where he lived in in France. And I've not been there at all, so I feel like I'm way behind and I've got to catch up. I go to Ohio quite a bit because I've got family now in Cincinnati, and um, it's not that far. It's in the same state. It's in the other corner. But um, but I'm I'm going to have to make a, a, a sojourn that direction. I, I, there's there's so many things that we need to kind of plunge into there. I'm I'm tempted though to to take a, a little stab at this writing a book thing because I, I do understand the research. But I am I'm just kind of curious. Once you started doing the book, is there a certain discipline that you you know like one of these people that got up at four o'clock in the morning and you know, wrote till 10 or something, or is there, uh, you know, how do you throw yourself into writing a book about an author like this and, and a story like that farm? Well, really the big thing is doing the research and then the book pretty much wrote itself. The, it takes a long time to get all the facts and get them together. And I typed up notebooks and notebooks and notebooks full of notes from everything I read. My archival document stack was probably, I don't know, four inches high, just all the notes I took on archival documents. And so the main thing that I had to do then to write the book was to take all these thousands of pages of notes and condense it all down into one book. And so that was, I guess, the most difficult and yet the most rewarding part. It was like a puzzle to put all the pieces together and then see the story come out of it. Now, did you grow up on a farm yourself? It's kind of a homestead. So my parents didn't make a living farming, but we had 20 acres and we raised, we had goats and chickens and a garden and bees. And so we raised most of our own food. Well, you know what? That's the modern farm in a lot of respects. And it's also one that harkens back to some of the visions that I can see you could relate to Louis Bromfield. I grew up on a farm and, um, and then left and kind of Louis Bromfield grew up on a farm and left. Um, but you know, if, if I got this right, he was one of those people that was able to go to Europe. Uh, and uh, was he an ambulance driver or something like this? Um, am I imagining that? 
Yeah, he was an ambulance driver in uh, World War One. Which apparently back then is what you could do if you instead of the time where you pull strings to get out of the action, uh, wealthy people that were pretty well off and connected in good universities and everything got jobs to go to Spain and drive or in World War One and drive ambulances. And then after they got over there, they and the wars got over, it was kind of like, well, this isn't bad staying here. And at the time after World War One, you could live pretty cheaply in Paris. And so you ended up having Fitzgeralds and Hemingways and all of this kind of Paris scene of the 20s, which I'm always found very appealing to that story. I, you know, the people would go to the salons and I envision going to the cafe societies and in Paris and having these parties that Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein would have and talk big ideas. And um, so I, I'm ready to open a salon with you guys so we can have a, a, a salon. It's, it's the podcast of those days. But the thing that, that uh, when you're in that era, uh, several of them, and particularly Bromfield, were attracted to get out of Paris and get some acreage outside of Paris. You've been to the place in Paris. I don't know, Annalise, if you had as well. What impression did that have on you, Rich, when you could see where, you know, where he went when he was outside of Paris and, you know, this, and started, started getting into these directions at that time? Well, it's an, you know, it's an old town, Saint-Lys. Uh, it's about an hour north of Paris. And, it's beautiful. You know, it's that typical old French village, if you will, with the church in the center. And he was uh, kind of on the outskirts, the ancient outskirts, outskirts, if you will. Um, there's a little river, or I don't know if I'd call it a river as much as it, it's a canal, but the Nonette, it's still there, flowing with water, and his garden was right below it. I did knock on the door of the home, and it was... I believe, if I understood him correctly, and, and I do speak French, and it was a grandson of the people that Bromfield leased the home from. And I, I just wanted to know if it was the right house. And he just said, there are no artifacts here. There's no artifacts from Mr. Bromfield. And in the town, he's referred to as the big American, because I guess he was six, two or three. I'm not quite sure, but I guess he was a pretty big guy. So they referred to him as the big American. And uh, so not, not only did he have a big stature, I think he had a big personality, but it was, it was a neat old place. Um, you know, I get it. While why, what was attracted, attractive about it to him, you know, with that, that little river running through it and an older home. And then, of course, the, the garden below. And, and that was the lifestyle back then, you know, with these uh, Paisians, um, you know, having their little gardens and stuff like that. So, yeah, I think he was a man of the soil at heart. But. He was also a great writer. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I mean, I'm in so far. I like this whole idea of kind of some of that Paris society of the, of the 1920s and then being able to get the kind of place that you're describing outside of Paris. Annalise, did your research take you into that space at all, either going around and looking in that area of France or, or did you find um, more information about, uh, about his life when he was in Europe and what was perhaps starting to shape his attitudes about farming? I did not really cover that period much because my research was more than a biography of Bromfield. 
So I did not really do much research beyond what the biographies have, like Heyman's, and then there's a couple other biographies like by uh, Ivan Scott. And so I didn't really go any deeper than that. Well, you, you know, after he had that experience, um, stop me if I got this wrong, Rich, but he actually went and spent some time in India. And then I don't know how it all happened, but he ended up coming back, writing writing books and getting some made into movies and spending some time in Hollywood. And again, I can't remember all the sequence of events. After all of this, wanted to go back to a farm and uh, came back and, and looking um, – in Ohio. And, and I think that in itself is kind of interesting to me because, you know, they, just, they used to say, even in that time, you know, how are they going to get him back on the farm after they've seen Paris? And, mm-hmm. um, and his was kind of the, the opposite of that. it was kind of like, you know, he's seen Paris. He'd seen all of that. He's seen Hollywood. He had, a, you know, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall and all these people as friends and, and where he felt he was literally grounded was in that northeast corner of Ohio. I, I'm just curious, Rich, to fill in the blanks because you did do the the France side and you followed his story closely and see how his uh, which which brought him home. Did that did that surprise you at all? That I mean, if you had the entire world to choose from, that you would pick a space in northeast Ohio to 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 really get planted and start. You know, working on these, uh, making these philosophies come to life. You know, I respect him for that because he he was living large and he could live large. And, and Annalise, you may know a little bit more about th- that history. But I mean, I think during the Depression, he was hired by MGM and he was making twenty five hundred dollars a week, I think, to write screenplays, um, you know, in the 30s. and. I guess he didn't like to do. Uh, so he bought out that contract apparently, but you know, I, I have that great deal of respect for him because in fact, what he, he kind of manifested was most important to him was going back to where he came from and, and, you know, and maybe having a, a somewhat misplaced uh, dream of replicating a farm that he had left back in the, you know, early, early, early part of that century, as far as that whole general farm and stuff. But no, I think it's neat that he, that he came back and was a man of means and apparently, and and he had money to spend. And, and, you know, I always thought he, he was a little more um, pragmatic in his spending and his approach to farming, but apparently he used up a lot of money um, farming and entertaining his, his friends and, uh, you know, and, and at the end of his life, he was in a little bit of dire straits and Annalise could probably speak to that, certainly. But anyways, just coming back was great, in my opinion, coming back to the land. Annalise, is that where your book starts? Yes, my book starts actually with Brownfield coming back to Malabar. And I did look a little bit into like why, at least why he said he came back. I didn't go into much more depth than that, but there were really two motivating factors. The one was World War II was the big thing because it just wasn't safe to stay in France. He was, it would have been right at the front lines when the Germans invaded France. And so he just could not stay there anymore. He had to get out. He sent his family first and then he came later when he absolutely had to. And you get the impression he may not have left France if it hadn't been for the war. But then the other thing was he really had this kind of nostalgic agrarian dream. He wanted 
to have a farm that produced everything. He wanted to have a general farm where it had all the animals, all the fruits, all the vegetables, all the poultry, maple syrup, honey, everything. It wanted it to be, he called an island of self-sufficiency because he was worried about the war, rationing all these things. He's like, it should be an island of security where, uh, where you could withstand a siege and where if necessary, you could get out the shotgun and rifle for defense. So he was kind of wanted to withdraw into rural Ohio and kind of get away from the world was his hope. You know, it's interesting because I just this week I uh, was sent a paper that the European Union has come up with and, and describing uh, a better way forward for all of Europe on a, a food system, which seems to be very similar to to his philosophies. One of the things that's uh, surprising to me uh, is that they really were suggesting livestock needs to be much more incorporated across Europe again. And um, there was there were just things that I thought when I was reading this report of 2021 that I think harkened back to, you know, almost a hundred years ago, it's not quite a uh, hundred years ago when he was having those perspectives and, and, and experiences back, back then as, as well. So, you know, I, I want to ask both of you, it, you know, when they seize the place and he's out shopping for farms, describe that land. It's a, it's a hilly area. It's actually, I, I think I agree with Bromfield. It's one of the more beautiful parts of Ohio. It's not like, Northwest Ohio, which is pretty much completely flat right now. It's like one giant cornfield and it's very boring. I mean, very productive, but not very aesthetically interesting. But this, the where Malabar Farm is located is right on the edge between the glaciated and unglaciated regions of Ohio. And so there's lots of hills, there's sandstone that kind of like juts out in certain places. There's springs that come out all over the place. There's forests, there's fields. It's a very interesting area. There's a lot of variety. There's a lot of water. There's a lot of trees. There's a lot of hills. It's a very beautiful place. And so I can see why since Brownfield grew up there, why he would want to come back because it really is a beautiful part of Ohio. Quite frankly, it, it reminds me somewhat of Northern France mm -hmm. as well. <laughs> those, those hills, there's a, a lot more church spires in Northern France. But um, it's quite similar, the, the, the terrain, the countryside. So I, I imagine Bromfield was attracted to both for the reasons Annalise describes. I believe the hills in that part of the world were, in fact, heavily logged, if you will, um, mm -hmm. in, the, in the first wave of settlement, which was, gosh, approaching 200 years ago. Um, and so there are, there are older deciduous forest there now. Um, but I, I think, and Annalise, you might be able to answer this better. I think a lot of them were cut by the settlers for both timber um, and to clear land and to make charcoal, perhaps, you know, as fuel. Um, I'm not sure of that history, though, back there. I mean, they're gorgeous today. Um, and some of them are pretty big trees. But I imagine that the early settlers had their, uh, their say <laughs> with a lot of that forest. But I don't know that. Annalise, do you have a, a better sense of that? Yeah. So based on the photographs we have, there were a lot less trees on the land than there are now. Like he could stand, he talked about standing on top of Mount G's and he could see the Ferguson place and vice versa. And you can't now, you can't see the Ferguson place. And he mm -hmm. said you could see Pleasant Hill Lake, which is the big reservoir. And you can't see that for Mount G's anymore either. 
And so the way he described the forest when he came, there were still some old growth trees in the ravines in the really steep places where it had been too hard to log them because it was kind of inaccessible. Uh, but most of the forests were in rather bad shape because they were letting all the cattle graze in there. And so the cattle were eating all of the underbrush and the young trees. And so it, the soil was in bad shape and eroded and gullied in the forest. The fields were really gullied. There was one gully right behind the big house was so big. He said, you could, you could uh, lose a horse in there and bury it. And nobody would even know it was there. That's how badly eroded the hillsides were from overgrazing and from overplowing. What do you feel are some of the most important messages to take from looking at Louis Bromfield and what he did at Malabar Farms? Well, that, that, that's a great question. Um, my sense is, <clears throat> I would say, from an agricultural or agronomic perspective, it's the, the focus on and the respect for soil and, and the water cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, good, healthy soil, good, clean water, you know, are, are so foundational for agriculture. And then broadening that and, and, and based on that, I would also say just the importance of those two elements and what they lend to the potential for society um, with regards to good food, um, good um, economic activity, you know, that's that's sustainable, if, you, if I can use that word, um, and the importance of that to, to a strong country. Um, I still think it's important. And I, and I think Bromfield knew that or, and felt that. And, and probably it stems from his, what he saw of not only the, the locals in France and how they tended their little plots and the farmers back then um, did what they did, but then also the, the tenuous nature of you know, politics and, and international relations and stuff like that. I think that that security, if you will, that, that one could envelop in with good food stemming from good soil and good water is very, very compelling then and today. So those, plus he's a great writer, the way he describes stuff. So it's, it's a fun to read, whether it be Pleasant Valley, you know, which basically describes his departure from France and his return to Ohio or Malabar Farm, which then describes what, what he did there uh, over the course of, I think, five or six or seven years. So just um, they're, they're good, solid messages that, that still resonate today. Annalise, you've written a whole book that you're getting ready to get published. And, um, and I, I don't want you to give away like the, the secrets of the bottom line of your book. But, but um, what do you think are some of the lessons that generally that you could say, here's, here's what we can learn from Louis Bromfield. But what do you think are top on the list? I think there are a ton of lessons. Like you said, I've, I've written a whole book much about that. Um, one thing that I point out in my book is that Louis Bromfield was not like a Lone Ranger kind of guy who came up with all his ideas by himself. He was actually part of a rather large and influential movement, a group called Friends of the Land, who were really into soil conservation. And so there was this dialogue going on between Bromfield and all of these other people, including like Hugh Bennett, who was the chief of the Soil Conservation Service. There was a writer called Russell Lord. There was a, a ton of conservationists, businessmen, corporate executives, uh, doctors, writers, this, this group of very influential people, elite people, who were all very worried about the soil conservation 
conservation that was hitting the United States in the 30s from bad farming. And so uh, there's a lot of lessons to be learned there, like to see what they actually were able to accomplish and then what ended up happening to all their ideas later on in the 1950s. There was a huge paradigm shift and a lot of that stuff was completely ignored later on, but they were very influential before and during World War II. There were many ideas that influenced modern sustainable agriculture. There was conservation tillage, grass farming. Bromfield even did direct marketing of organic vegetables. There was a lot of things that are really relevant today. And I can go into more detail on any one of those, but that's kind of a broad, broad overview that he was able to size it all up and say, why can't we do this better? But how he would approach doing it better wasn't necessarily what everybody else thought was doing it better. He wouldn't, he wasn't one of these people that said, well, I'm from a red state or a blue state, or I'm from this or that, or I'm organic or I'm conventional. He was kind of like um, more the equivalent of IPM rich, you know, he's kind of the, like integrated, I'll use a little of this, a little of that, but it seemed like he he was very objective in sizing up whatever it was he move ahead in that direction. Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, Annalise, you've kind of you've researched some of those other relationships he's had, correct? With some of those other icons, if you will. Yeah, actually, I have. And so, what's interesting when you talk about things like red versus blue states, organic versus conventional is that most of those really deep-seated um, like controversies didn't really exist yet in Bromfield's time. These have all kind of happened. They started in the 1950s. They were like just beginning to happen, but they weren't as huge, especially the organic and conventional agriculture. It was really fascinating because this is why I subtitled my book in part sustainable agriculture and not organic because brownfield is like a whole chapter and i think he has one in malabar farm and in out of the earth he has a whole chapter on organic the organic chemical fertilizer feud as he calls it and at that time it was it was the fertilizers that were debated pesticides were kind of their own issue and brownfield was very opposed to pesticides and so the debate was just about whether all fertilizer had to be organic or if you could put down a little superphosphate to make the legumes grow faster and get the alfalfa growing to restore the soil. And so Bromfield's like, well, the little superphosphate makes the, the alfalfa grow faster and it's building organic matter. How can that be bad? And then there were people like J.I. Rodale and Sir Albert Howard was Rodale's kind of, I wouldn't say mentor because he didn't really know him, but his inspiration in the organic farming method. And so Rodale would took the line that chemical fertilizers, just like pesticides were actually poisonous, that they would actually make inferior quality uh, produce that wouldn't be as good. And Bromfield didn't buy that because that's not what he saw happening at Malabar. So in that sense, I suppose you could say he was pragmatic. He wasn't necessarily always practical in his ideas. He didn't have any, he didn't have any concept of the value of money. Like he did what he thought was best whether or not it was profitable or not. That's interesting. What do you think about that, Rich? Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm somewhat of that ilk as well. Um, I mean, I, I look at both um, perspectives. Um, I, I just think what I truly appreciate, though, about Bromfield is, is that focus on soil and, and, and enhancing the water cycle and just being really, you know, careful of, nurturing those resources. And 
I, I can see a blending of, of the two to a certain extent. Um, I'm not a purist um, in either, either way in my farming. I try to be probably a little more organic, if you will, um, in my approach. I'm trying to grow healthy plants and healthy soil to minimize the need for pesticides. Um, doesn't always happen. We're, we're spraying today for asparagus aphid in our asparagus field. So it's a bummer. I, it drives me nuts, but we're doing it. Um, but I appreciate kind of that, that, that point of inflection he was at in history with, with these various folks, you know, coming forth and putting out these ideas, um, that, which I think are really important to reference today. Um, we all think that maybe these are modern discussions or the, for the first time, but in fact, some of them took place way back then for, and we know more now too. And so we probably can be better informed, but nonetheless, I, I love that historical aspect of looking at things in that regard. You know, as we say this, it reminds me that there ought to be a way to describe like the kind of farming that you're doing, Rich, and the kind of approach that he took. That's kind of, a, it, it is sort of a red and blue state type of thing, is that there's so much in between in the middle of being pragmatic. And Bromfield didn't set uh, a mold. He was a, he was a, a radical. One other thing he has in common with farmers today, though, is that he didn't seem to get rich from the farming. You know, I, I got the impression that um, that, you know, he was doing all these things. He was doing things we admire. Um, but there was always reference that he, he wasn't making as much money off the farm per se as, uh, as he would like. I, I suspect it was because he was throwing such big, big parties that, um, he was writing too much of that off, but I don't know if you guys got a better impression on that, that there was some other basics going on, but, uh, but he had a hard time, you know, building wealth from the farm per se. Yeah, I think Annalise can probably speak to that pretty well. But um, he, it, there, for me, the, the story, Annalise, almost has a, a tragic flair to it, um, you know, with the, such grandiose plans and, you know, bushels and bushels of hope that he started with and then how it all transpired, maybe some economic realities got in the way i don't i don't know what do you think all right so there were there were two things going on the first one was that bromfield was just he he hated the idea of being frugal or thrifty he just hated that idea he wanted to be the host and that wasn't just having people over it was having an enormous feast tons of food tons of alcohol tons of cigarettes having a 20 guests almost every day they say he ran his house like a hotel like a really fine hotel but he never charged anybody to stay there and so his expenses were really high and so Despite, I do think his farming was just as productive as any farming of the day, but it was not realistic to expect that any farm, no matter how well farmed, could support the kind of lifestyle Bromfield wanted to lead. He was just way too extravagant, and there was no farmer could live the way Bromfield did off of the proceeds of a farm, really, at any time in history. He really was unrealistic about that. So that was one thing that was going on. Now, the reason that whether or not he made a profit off the farm, aside from all his other expenses, which, of course, could, the farm could have never supported those. The reason I've discovered is that why that you know, has been debated so much is because it really depends on the time period. So Malabar, he started out with his general farm idea. 
but soon realized that it really just wasn't practical. It worked during the war with rationing and everything. It was really nice to be able to produce all of those things because it was hard to find them at the store and they were rationed. But after that, it just wasn't economical. And so he transitioned Malabar to what he called a grass farm, which meant basically he turned it into a dairy farm. He had beef cattle, but really most of them were cows. And there was a huge milk boom after World War II. Milk was very profitable. The demand was greater than the supply. It was very actually lucrative to be a dairy farmer during that time period. And so Bromfield was, you know, when he said it was good to be a dairy farmer, he was actually making just as much money, you know, as any other dairy farmer probably. Uh, but then there was a crash in 1953. And this is something that nobody talks about when they talk about the history of Bromfield. But suddenly dairy farmers could not sell their milk for what it costs to produce. And dairy farmers really have been struggling ever since 1953. And so that hit Bromfield hard because at the same time, his novels were not selling as well. His quality of his novel writing really declined. Also, I think there was a lot of other things going on in the 50s. He was being marginalized, like many others in this soil conservation movement. And then he didn't, you know, try to cut things back at all. He just had bigger parties and had more people over. Like his, for his birthday, he had what he called a lobster wallow. He got a whole barrels and barrels of clams and lobsters shipped directly from Maine and had a big party. And he just couldn't, he just couldn't afford that. So that was why he ran out of money. It was partly his own fault. And then partly he was stuck in a bad time period, but it wasn't the fault of his farming practices. Wow. I wish I was there. We we both had the same reaction at the same time. I know. Uh, I know. Wow. <laughs> kind of like, you know, I I understand how there's folly involved there, but I, I just, just I would like to have gone, actually. It sounds it sounds like fun. Rich oh, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a a lot of lessons for people that perhaps are already in agriculture and they're farming and they need to kind of be reminded, I think, of some of the basic ways of looking at, at farming that it's really refreshing to probably to go back and look at Louis Bromfield. There's people that um, are looking ahead, that they want to be become farmers, get into agriculture. They might look at it too. You've read a lot of, of Bromfield. And if somebody is listening to this and, and what would you suggest now, they have to wait a little bit for Annalise's book, and I'll let her remind them of the name of that book again pretty soon. But what do you suggest to somebody that wants to uh, go back and kind of refresh themselves? And who is this Louis Bromfield? And what are what what book or books would you send them to? Oh, I, I would send them to um, Pleasant Valley and Malabar Farm. Okay, those are my two favorites. Those are the ones I buy, I purchase the most, uh, and give away. Uh, and that covers about what a ten or twelve year period, more or less. Um, and you know, describing the whole thought process behind Malabar, and then the, and then the, the at least the initial experience of Malabar Farm. And and I would also suggest they look into books, uh, some of those co the contemporaries that Annalise referenced in that group. Um, I would say Plowman's Folly by um, Edward. I think it's Edward Faulkner. Um, and then, but more importantly, um, A Second Look by Faulkner, which was kind of his sequel or response to Plowman's Folly. Um, there's um, Joseph Kokenauer or Kokenue, who the, the water and the cycle of life, I think. Uh, he was a contemporary of Bromfield. 
And then Paul Sears wrote uh, Deserts on the Mart. And I know they were all kind of in that, that, that group, if you will. Um, my very, very, very favorite sustainable ag quote is from Paul Sears, and it talks about soil and the importance of keeping soil covered. And, and his, he wrote in, in 1936 or seven in Deserts on the March, he said, Mother Earth is a staid and dignified old lady, no nudist by choice. That is the best quote. I think ever. Say it again. Say it again. So people give a chance to pick up their pencils and pens. <laughs> Mother Earth is a staid and dignified old lady, no nudist by choice. I just love it. <laughs> and and I, you know, and I think Brom Bromfield would would have raised a glass of whiskey and, and said, here, here. <laughs> As he took a big bite of lobster tail, perhaps. <laughs> so those are the those are the books that have and and what those books tell me is that what we're talking about today although we know more we have better science we have better analytics we have more information but the basis for what we're talking about is really old knowledge you know with, with as far as soil and the foods that are produced on good soils and the importance of all those things that Bromfield espoused, you know, with the importance to society, all that stuff is, is fairly fundamental and foundational. It's not like we're discovering it today. We are rediscovering it. And, and, and by looking at these old books, we can get an appreciation for it. But then I think some of these newer books like Annalise's are, are going to help even more to, to reaffirm those positions. Rich, I want you to, um, if you wouldn't mind, emailing me those names and titles again, and I'll place them in the description here for the podcast, so people oh, sure. can look them up and sure. and and chase them. They're all at my, my they're all on my bedside. So <laughs> okay, and then I think that um, you say they're on your website. Bedside, there are no, they're at my bedside. Oh, bedside. Table. I'm so used to people saying website. The bedside oh. sounds a lot like website. Actually, they should be the same thing, Rich. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, get, I've got them. So, yeah, and, uh, and I mentioned, I kind of got motivated on this. So I mentioned to you, I just finished reading the book called The Planner of Modern Life, Louis Bromfield and Seeds of a Food Revolution by Stephen Heyman. And um, I enjoyed that. But I am really looking to, Annalise, you're going to get a book out. Um and the title of your book will be what? It'll be Malabar Farm is the main title. And then the subtitle will be Lewis Bromfield, Friends of the Land and the Rise of Sustainable Agriculture. And that will be coming out with Kent State University Press this November. Oh, you know what? And these podcasts tend to be evergreen. So there'll be people listening to this a year from now and uh, they'll have to go back and say, well, she was talking about November of 2021 because they'll still be listening to this podcast in 2022, uh, but they'll still be able to find it. So I assume that uh, just going online and finding wherever those, those uh, where books are sold, you'll be there. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. I, I really appreciate this conversation, uh, it's it's kind of unusual to have a podcast talking about a book to be and books that have been, uh, because it seems of a different era, doesn't it? I mean, it's at a time that we're all connected with social media and everything digital and virtual and Zoom this and Zoom that. 
And, and Rich, as you've reminded us, we go back to some basic wisdoms that are pretty ancient that um, are as relevant or more relevant today than they ever were. So, yeah. um, so with that, I, I want to thank you both. We have been fortunate enough to have a conversation with Rich Collins and Annalise Abbott and, um, and about somebody that we, we are all really interested, Louis Bromfield. And Louis Bromfield uh, opens us up and reminds us of perspectives that are as important today and maybe more important today than even they were 70 plus years ago when he was writing about them. So I want to thank you both for being on Farm to Table Talk. Thank you, Roger. Be well. Thank you, Annalise. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us. Farm to Table Talk.